Listen up, everybody. On Tuesday, March 19th, 4.15 Eastern Time, that's 1.15 here local in LA, I'll be hosting a webinar to discuss Cambria's two new ETFs, the Cambria Tactical Yield ETF, ticker TYLD, and the Cambria Micro and Small Cap Shareholder Yield ETF, ticker MYLD. Head over to Cambria's Twitter and LinkedIn pages to find the registration link. Once again, that's March 19th at 4.15 Eastern Time. Look forward to seeing you. Carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risk factors, charges, and expenses before investing. This and other information can be found by visiting our website at www.cambryfunds.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing or sending money. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of capital. The Cambry ETFs are distributed by Alps Distributors, Inc., member FINRA, FINRA. Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hello, podcast listeners. It is getting down to near the end of October, and we've had so many awesome guests on the podcast lately. Been dealing with the avalanche requests to bring Jeff back. Time for a radio show. Remsburg, how goes it? It's going good. Glad to be back. We're winding down the end of October. Do you have a spooky costume or what? That's a good, good, good question. I do not have anything planned yet. I might have to dig back up one of the ones I've broken out for like the last four or five years. Would you like to share your kind of go-to costume with the podcast world? Well, there's a couple. The one for many years was uh, Wooderson from the movie Dazed and Confused. Um, also known as Matthew McConaughey's probably most iconic role. Yeah, there you go. And then I kind of slipped into just some general bad sort of last minute party city type costumes, like an Indian. And then there was a biker. Yeah. <laughs> it just did poorly. My favorite of yours is the uh, the Incredible Average Hulk. Yeah. the And then I was the kid from Up with all the balloons oh. once when I, I think I met my wife and she was trying to come up with ideas for his costumes as a young toddler and she was trying to suggest that and i said that sounds like so much work i was just can we just do the skeleton <laughs> the skeleton pajamas and be done with it <laughs> well deke and your dog be dressing up too oh boy so anyway listeners been doing a lot of travel it's been great seeing some of you in nashville san antonio rhode island all over the place we're going to be in las vegas this weekend if you're there for the AAII conference, come out and say hello with uh, lots of our other friends who are also speaking at the conference, the Resolve guys, uh, all, all sorts of other people we've had on the podcast. So if you're in that part of the world, come say hello. All right. Well, today we have you know plenty of stuff to go over, but let's just start with some fun stuff first. Some of our listeners may not be aware of this amazing little tweet battle you got into with Elon Musk, and it's more entertaining to me than anything else, but I'm sure some listeners will find it a little bit comic too. So why don't you just explain to everybody what was going on with that? Like Elon, I probably shouldn't be on Twitter. Like most people should not just be on Twitter. Twitter is, it's kind of a, gone from a pleasant distraction to I don't even know what now. But 
Elon, who, by the way, let me preface this by saying, I think he is a generational entrepreneur. I'm actually a huge fan of all of his companies. I don't have any positions in any of his stocks, but love everything that he does. I, I do, like many people, if I was the chairman of the board, would say, we're probably going to delete your Twitter account or <laughs> we're just going to staff you with an intern. And every time you tweet, it has to go through compliance. But anyway, so Elon, you know, really struggles with the shorts, particularly in Tesla. And I can sympathize with a little bit of that. The shorts, it's kind of crazy dealing with nothing brings out emotion more than short sellers with an ax to grind and an and incentive for the stock to go down. So you do see companies uh, where the short sellers target them, spread misleading information. It's even worse on Twitter in this modern age of media. Anyway, but Elon had made a comment basically that short selling should be illegal. And he was actually re replying to one of his own comments from years ago being like, hey, short sellers are fine. Like it's, it's, he's like, I basically changed my mind. They're the worst. And I said, basically summarize, I said, look, we actually, this is prior to the Tom Barton podcast, who if you haven't listened, guys, it's, it's a great one, a lot of fun. But basically said, look, I love what you're doing, Elon, but shorts aren't the enemy. They shouldn't be illegal. They've exposed, if you listen to Tom's podcast, so many frauds, they, they act as a wonderful check in reality. And Elon had responded. I can't remember what exactly, but basically he had a couple tweets to where he said, you know, and I was like, I said, I love Elon Tesla, but he's got this backwards. Not all shorts are bad, just like all not all longs are good. And he said, not all, but however, shorting applied to market as a whole is obviously net negative and since negative GDP. Moreover, it stops private companies from going public, preventing access by retirement funds and small investors, thus increasing the wealth divide. And he posted a chart that showed the general decline in number of companies. And I think my opinion has changed on this over the years because originally I thought that was due to a lot of the new legislation, Sarbanes-Oxley, the, the challenge with being a public company and the new reporting requirements. But a lot of the vanguard has followed up with studies showing that in reality, it was a kind of an echo of a lot of, of these tiny microcap companies going public in the late 90s. And actually the decline isn't that big of a deal because it's a lot of just this tiny, tiny companies that, that existed. So you know, I'd pass that along. I said, also, you know, most of the good fund companies out there that do short lending, we started talking about short lending. I said, actually return the revenue to the investor instead of keeping it. In many cases, there's free ETFs where the retail investor actually has a negative expense ratio. I was trying to say this is actually great for retirement funds, small investors, and decreases wealth divide. I go, you know, it's great that they pay you to own them because a lot of people don't know about this. And of course, he responded... <laughs> When something sounds too good to be true, it usually is. The way the trick works is companies like BlackRock keep up to half the short interest revenue, but suffer almost none of the equity decline as they're just passive managers. BlackRock made $600 million in shorting last year. And I'd pass along a chart where most of the fund companies, the way that it works is you have to have someone manage the short lending operation. So in our case, it would be Brown Brothers, BBH. And they get paid to do that. Otherwise, well, obviously, someone has to do it. And so most fund companies kind of outsource partner with someone. And so they pass along the revenue, say 80, 90% to the investors, but the company running the short lending book gets paid to, to manage the process. Some of these companies like BlackRock do it internally. So technically they're paying another division within BlackRock to run it. And then you get into the question of, are they you know, profit maximizing it? Are they keeping it? And 
obviously BlackRock's a huge company, so 600 million, you know, they're keeping it. But in general, I think it's a great positive for investors. So anyway, that was kind of the end of the Elon Meb tryst. Sort of, you got me thinking, you mentioned Barton and his short selling experience. You know, Barton was doing majority of just exposing outright frauds versus taking calculated gambles on potentially overvalued companies. And then you mentioned also how shorting is a good sort of check. So I guess to what degree do you think are shorts now really sort of keeping certain stocks held accountable in terms of a lofty valuation versus is it just a pure gamble? Like how, how is it really affecting well, the market? You know, like the best part about it is like shorting is not guaranteed. Like you're an, an active investor, you short something, Tesla or something else, and it doubles or triples or quadruples. Like that's, it's not some risk-free game, which is funny because you're talking about price and, and shorting and fraud. Year to date, it was something like, if you look at the buckets of companies sorted by price to revenue, in the US stock market, by far the best performers are the ones with the highest price of revenue. On average, is like 300 price of revenue. And then it stair steps all the way down to the cheapest stuff is performing the worst. This may be, may have to update this after the last week as markets have declined, but that was the case certainly so far. So shorting expensive stocks, while that works over time, short term, anything can happen. So the challenge is, is, you know, fraud in the day and age of the internet, fraud is so much harder to get away with, one would think, with public companies. If you I mean if you're a fraud, why wouldn't you just go play around the crypto space, right? Something you know, this is a joke. But, you know, the the challenge as a CEO or someone's managing company, say, look, the best defense against the shorts is build a kick-ass company that builds value over time that everyone loves and just ignore them because eventually they have to buy back in the stock. And Amazon very heavily shorted company over the years is just to deliver, build a world-class company. And that's like the best revenge is your company goes from 10 billion mark cap to 50 to 100 to 500 trillion. Just on a side note, if you were evaluating an individual equity and you happen to notice that the short interest was X percent, what would sort of raise red flags for you to sort of be like, whoa, maybe I don't want to invest in this until I... Traditionally as a factor, short interest is is a... has information. It's, it's not something you traditionally want to own is high short interest companies like people that are shorting it usually have an information edge. The challenge is because we used to look into a lot of the short lending and obviously the highest short lending is the stuff that's most in demand because people know that it's probably going to go down. I remember I was tweeting about Tilray, the marijuana company that was like went vertical in this past quarter. I was looking at the options and how much the puts were priced and the puts for like the end of the year the stock had to go down by at least half for the puts to break even, you know? So (laughs) people at this point were fairly well aware that, you know, but that's how it gets priced. And so short lending and shorting outright high short interest stocks, it's a nice, in my mind, it's like a, it's like a nice balance where traditionally you want to avoid the high short interest stocks, but we don't actually use it as a factor in any of our portfolios. Just as a general educational tool for listeners, what's that sort of line in the sand in your mind as to what a high short interest looks like? I I don't know that there's a specific number because then you get into other areas like as a percentage of float, how much is freely traded. I I would have to look up and and recall, but you could easily just quartile or quintile or decile that into where so it's a a certain bucket. But we can look up some academic literature, talk about it on the next, next radio show. All right. 
Well, since last time I was on, we've begun to have a little bit of uh, market gyrations here. And I think that, you know, we've seen some emails come in from some Cambria followers who've been asking about our funds compared to uh, putting everything in just SPY and sort of what's going to happen. Any given thoughts or any general thoughts on the market number one and then sort of following SPY and its meteoric rise and what's happening now? So a couple of things. One is we consistently get emails over the last decade where people ask, hey, why is X strategy underperforming Y? And as people know, we run very diverse strategies, all sorts of different things. And it's just whatever happens to be going on in the world at that time. And so over this past cycle, and particularly year to date, U.S. stocks have outperformed almost everything, and including this year. And so we're starting to get some emails where, hey, why don't I just put all my money into U.S. stocks? And we actually, we actually have like a fair amount of canned responses about this at this point. And I'd like to write a little short white paper on just expectations in general. But I said, look, let's put this into perspective. Let's say you have the S&P 500, and let's say you have a beautifully designed, diversified global asset allocation. So something like the global market portfolio, which is roughly half stocks, half bonds, and of that, it's half US, half foreign. You can take that back to the 20s. It's done great. We published in the GA book back to the 70s. We even did an article where we'll compare it to cloning the largest hedge fund in the world with Bridgewater. It does a fantastic job. In that case, you need to add a little leverage. We compared it to CalPERS, Harvard, all this stuff. Great allocation. However, here's the challenge of being a money manager an investor, an advisor, is that no matter what strategy you have, there will be periods of outperformance and underperformance. First of all, U.S. stocks is not a good benchmark to a global asset allocation portfolio because the global asset allocation portfolio only has like one quarter of the portfolio in U.S. stocks. So first of all, it's kind of a wonky benchmark, but that's the way investors are built to think. They want to compare everything to U.S. stocks. So I said, look, it's 50-50 which one outperforms the other in any given year, U.S. stocks versus global asset allocation. However, U.S. stocks outperform a global asset allocation by a mile, meaning you look like an incredible idiot one out of every four years as measured by at least 10% underperformance versus S&P 500, okay? That's pretty often. On top of that, there's been times in history where you could easily go five, six years in a row where every single year U.S. stocks outperform a beautiful asset allocation portfolio. If you go back to the 1940s and 50s, remember the nifty 50s listeners with stocks? There was a period where S&P 500 beat a global asset allocation portfolio 13 of 15 years. And so the challenge, like any investment strategy, is looking different is periods of underperformance. But despite all that, you get similar returns, you get lower volatility, lower drawdowns, higher sharp ratio in the asset allocation portfolio. And most people in the S&P, if you were to say just invest in the S&P 500, you have to be willing to have 50% drawdowns regularly. So we've had two of those in the past 20 years. And on top of that, in the Great Depression, you lost over 80%. So I, I think... And this applies to any other asset class, any other strategy. People always ask us about expectations. And it's funny because my response is so much worse than what they're worried about. They're like, oh, Meb, you know, I see this is underperforming this past quarter. Like, what's going on? And I almost laugh. I say, oh, no, it can get much worse than that. 
you could this could last for years. This could go on for five more years and still be underperforming. I can underperform by 200 percentage points, not basis points, 200 percentage points. And so I think most people are just not well built to deal with underperformance and looking different. This ties in perfectly with one of your tweets of the week. I might butcher the guy's name, but uh, Nick Maggiuli. There's a quote from um, the article which you referenced in the tweets of the week. He basically says... Even when we have reasonable evidence that a particular investment strategy will work, the hardest discipline is sticking to that strategy through thick and thin. It is so difficult because that little voice in your head says, what if this signal doesn't work anymore? What if it was just a data mind result? What if I'm wrong? That little doubt is all it takes to turn the hardest resolve into the emotional putty that has destroyed generations of investors. Yeah. Well said, Nick. Actually, while we're on that topic, actually, let me back up. Anything else you want to add to this before I sort of rotate us a little bit? No, I mean, the classic example we've always given, listeners are probably sick of hearing this, but is the Buffett example where, you know, you go back to 1999, you just look at his stock picks, he outperforms the market by four percentage points per year, would, would be in the top 1% of all mutual funds. You don't pay any fees. It takes five minutes a year, but he's underperformed eight of the last 10 years. And so most people don't have a two decade long time horizon. And that's one of the biggest challenges with expectations is, is one, people already expect way too high returns. The average is always 10% plus. And two, research affiliates recently had an article where they say, you know, the, the chance of hitting that real 5% return. So let's call it eight plus percent nominal is less than 1% over the next 10 years. There's 1.5. So is it less than one? I it was no, one. it's it's. I think it's less than one percent. Let's let's see here. Let me double check what we have here. I'm looking at uh, one of your tweets of the week from Research Affiliates. It says if the odds of an average diversified portfolio hitting five percent real is just one point five percent, then what's the answer? Well, then I'm pessimistic. <laughs> but but I think they said in the U.S. the expected sixty forty is essentially zero. Oh. So anyway, expectations is tough though. People, because the problem is investor expects 10% returns. They come to someone like me and I tell them, no, no, no. 5%, first of all, real has been the historical benchmark. Add some inflation. But in the US specifically, for US manager, the opportunity set is way worse for US stocks. But a lot of investors, what do they do? They go find someone else that will promise them the potential of finding that 10% return magically somewhere want to be told what they want. They want to be told what they want to hear. All right. Well, let's uh, let's actually rotate now into some of these valuation topics because you've had a lot of tweets that have touched upon valuation and it's a little bit of a mixed signal. So let me just ramble here for a minute and then I'll let you sort of go with it. On one hand, you have a tweet that talks about the number of Russell 3000 companies trading for more than 10 times revenue is now approaching the 2000 level of absurdity. Then we have another tweet back to the whole Nick Maggiuli thing in which he says that uh, one of the best predictors of future stock returns is the average investor allocation to equities. And basically higher investor allocation to equities corresponds to lower future returns. And that signal basically would have just activated a get out of equities signal. Then on the other hand, you've got stuff like Ned Davis is saying how one of the most enduring features of this recovery is the absence of economic imbalances. Their careful review doesn't reveal any signs that we're at the top of the current economic expansion. And then you've got another quote or another tweet talking about how 
If history is any guide with 90% confidence rate of positive correlation, this market is going to deliver between 3 to 4% per annum for the next 10 years. So how do you, I'm not asking you to say which is going to be accurate, but how are you balancing all this conflicting information? And we always talk about the negative side. I think the the sort of knee-jerk reaction is to be like, yeah, we're lofty. These valuations are big. But what weight do you give the opposite side that's talking about how, nah, there's probably more juice in this bull. What do we do? I think it's not that we talk about the negative side. It's that we talk about the realistic side. Okay. And so on the same side of the same coin, we say, look, U.S. stocks have low returns. Romping, stomping bull on the rest of the world is much cheaper. You know, that's you could say I'm a huge optimist that I believe that foreign developed and emerging will do much better and the cheapest will do much better for the next 10 years. Again, people want to look at this on the next month time horizon, but really the next 10 years. But let's let's start with just U.S. stocks. Let me go back to our old quadrant analysis where if you put a market in cheap, expensive, uptrend, downtrend, what is the best quadrant historically? It's been cheap uptrend. Worst has been expensive downtrend, but second best has been expensive uptrend, which is where we are now. And we're, we've been saying this for years now, that's like a yellow flashing light, but the trend has still been up. And so valuations could keep going up, who knows? But the problem comes when that trend rolls over, that could be October of 2018. It's going to be close for most of our trend measures. And a lot of other asset classes, if you look at our old school timing model, 2006 white paper, a lot of asset classes have already exited right over the course of this year. So you've been de-risking over the course of this entire year. There's a few remaining holdouts. Commodities are still there. U.S. stocks are still there. There's real estate is potentially hanging on by a thread. And depending on the foreign market, there's some. But the average foreign market is down by like a quarter this year. So you're already you're already in bear market territory with a lot of the foreign markets. Now, depending on your perspective, if you're a younger person or still allocating a lot to life savings, you say, damn, this is an awesome thing. I want stocks to go down by another 50, 80%. Set up a generational buying opportunity. If you're older, living off your investment returns is a little harder to stomach that. But this is a good frame of reference for the home country bias. Yes, we're trying to be realistic using Bogle's old equation. You plug it in for the US, I get low single digit returns. Some people get minus 5% real, like GMO does for the next decade. Some people, I don't know if there's anyone, I'm trying to remember if anyone's projecting over 10% returns for US stocks at this point. Columbia was really high on the list. But anyway, most people tend to be pretty quantish. And that's why I like the way Research Affiliates does it, as they have like a heat map of potential probabilities. So most likely is zero but then are there potentials that you could do one, two, three, four, or, or you know, minus one, two, three, four? Sure. Those are just less, less likely. But the trend has been enduring. We'll just see when it starts to roll over. I mean, if you had to focus your analysis to only reasons why just the US market alone will keep going up, forget being pragmatic and talking about better example or better markets around the world, all that. We're just looking at US for a moment. What argument would you give if you had a gun to your head as to why we're going to keep climbing? You haven't seen the historical mania yet. And you've seen it in pockets. You saw it in crypto earlier in the year. You've seen it in marijuana equities recently. Have we gone to visit our cannabis co-working space in West Hollywood yet? (laughs) This is on your to-do list by the end of the year. Powered by blockchain, by the way, was the name of it. Uh, so you've seen pockets of mania, but you haven't seen broad-based mania. I was laughing because I gave a speech in Rhode Island and it was at a private club 
and I walked in, they have like a bar, you know, the two TVs over the bar on each side. And one TV was on Weather Channel and the other was on CNBC or C- CNN or Fox or something. But neither of them were on CNBC or Bloomberg, et cetera. So uh, it's a sign of the times where people just aren't that euphoric. I mean, we've been talking about the Jay Cutler bull market, right? So I, I don't know. I, I don't know that that's a, that, that's a requirement for a market to end or just can kind of just fizzle out on, on being expensive and the weight drags it down. But we do know if you look at a lot of the historical studies, not just in the US, but international, when you are at these valuations, you have a much higher chance of a big fat drawdown in the next five years. Oh, you're a student of history. Can you recall any bull in the US that ended without mania? Or have, is, Yeah, is, I haven't been around for three quarters of them. So I, it's hard to... <laughs> student of history and sentiment an academic. Is, a, is a little tougher. But obviously, you had the two biggies, the roaring 20s and the 1990s. Both of those were full-on manias, right? But others, you could certainly have a top without a mania, I think. It's kind of switching back to the research affiliates tweet. Who were we talking to? Was it Howard Marks said that it was a mania was kind of required for... Well, I remember I was going to ask you that question because uh, we just, we asked, uh, is mania required for there to be think, the end? I, I don't see why it would be, though. Well, I mean, the stock market it's is... rolled of its own own weight and just sinks. But it's, it's, it's going to sink based upon the emotions. You know, just a high valuation... Well, historically, one of the worst it. times to be investing in stocks is when unemployment's this low. Counterintuitive for a lot of people. Let's switch back to research affiliates really quick because we were talking about how or they were saying the the odds of hitting five percent real is just one point five percent. So tying back to Arnott and his whole concept of over rebalancing, or what's the other phrase that was just used? Marks used calibrating. Calibrating. All right. So to what extent then would over rebalancing or calibrating way more into say emerging markets be a wise decision? if you can't stomach these incredibly low returns? Is that taking on too much concentration risk? You got you to gotta remember that most people have nowhere near the global market portfolio already, which is half. If you're doing stocks, it's half in foreign stocks and emerging market stocks. And no one does that already. So that's already, that's the literal Vanguard index if you're doing stocks. It's half in the US and half in foreign. So no one does that. So getting to go, getting to the starting line, of not hugely overweighting the U.S. is the first step most will never do. And that's the starting point. So then if you were to say, okay, Meb, let's say you're a totally rational investor, you do half in foreign, and then now you say, you know what, I want to tilt towards value. Then, only then is it starting to get uncomfortable where you say, okay, I'm going to add, I'm going to have 75% in foreign equities. And one of the ways to do this, so instead of trying to rebalance it yourself, is simply to allocate to, say, a global value fund that does value investing, could be one of ours, could be one of someone else's, where you're looking at go anywhere, where the fund itself does the the value tilts so that you're not trying to go buy Russian and Brazilian ETFs. That's a lot harder for people to let the funds do the do the work themselves for you. All right, let's do this. Let's switch to one more sort of tweet comparison, and then let's hop into some uh, listener Q&A. We got some good ones. And sadly, by the way, that was a blackberry cucumber LaCroix. That was not a Budweiser <laughs> or Pale Ale. It's like, sadly? Sadly. Feel like drinking right now? No, on I don't. I Monday don't. afternoon no, at 3 I o'clock? Don't. I don't know. That's not the tone I just picked up. Let's go. All right, so... 
here we go. Private equity. We got two tweets that seem to be a little contradictory. I'm curious what your thoughts. So we got research affiliates, in your own words here, laying the hammer on private equity, expecting 1.5% returns for uh, leverage buyout and 29 returns for VC over the next 10 years. Then we have Dan Rasmussen, who we had on the podcast, great guy, uh, who is a private equity guy. He says, uh, of the more than 3,100 news stories referencing private equity this year, the positive to negative sentiment ratio was nearly 16 to 1. There is no stronger consensus in markets today than the view that PE is a superior asset class. So how are you viewing these seemingly conflicting ideas? I think a lot of real money institutions over the past few decades have allocated to PE in the beliefs and hopes that it's an asset class that will deliver them alpha. And all the historical research shown it's possible you need to be in the highest quintile of managers. Well, and the old research used to be that that quintile was sustainable, where they there tended to be the same managers would would stay in the top quintile. That has faltered over the past couple of decades. On top of that, you've seen more and more research come out that basically says, look, you can basically get private equity returns by doing small cap value. And private equity also smooths some of the returns so it looks less risky than public market equities. But in reality, public market equities, if you were to mark them to market like PE private funds do, would be pretty darn similar. So my view is on top of that, by the way, if you're a taxable institution, vastly better to be in a strategy that would replicate private equity in something like an ETF. So all of a sudden you're not doing this in a taxable way. There's lots of caveats to these things. We've talked about all the tax hacks like QSBS and opportunity zones and retirement accounts, all that good stuff too. But private equity in general, I think my belief is that it's essentially you can replicate it with public equities. Was R not the forecast of one and a half percent returns? Is that just because there's so much money sloshing around that it's and the valuations the, the deals are going off and so you can track kind of what traditional metrics of enterprise value to EBITDA. Dan was talking about that. And I think it's continued to go up and you can track sort of what that world is transacting at and what debt levels and everything else that's kind of goes along with it. But yeah, I think if, if the world looks like what our friends at research affiliates and many other quant shops ends up looking like, I think I'm getting more and more of the belief that a lot of these big institutions, particularly pension funds are in for a world of hurt if you end up getting 1% returns on US stocks, on private equity. Bonds, bonds may be the savior. They'll give you 3%. But certainly, there's no way you get to the 8% with traditional US assets. Do you know offhand what the sort of general expectation for these pensions and the large institutions? They're all 8% for? a year. They're still at 8%. But a some year. have dipped down to 75 which by the way, is the most ridiculous thing because they should benchmark them to real returns plus inflation. It makes no sense to say 8% if inflation is zero and 8% if inflation's at 8%. It's the most nonsensical benchmark on the planet, but that's just what they've used to have done, right? So we'll see. It'll be fun. I mean, fun. Fun is not the word. <laughs> it will be interesting to see how this plays out. <laughs> Actually, one more tweet before we jump into Q&A. 
found this is pretty interesting. You were referencing, or in your own words, this is why most portfolios we see are a high-fee hot mess. And it was Michael Kitsis talking about the necessity of marketing and how that's nearly as important as performance and fees and attracting investor assets. Uh, did you have any sort of additional thoughts on this whole optics element? I, mean, I think it's well known at this point that most funds historically have been sold, not bought. Meaning someone has, you always follow the incentives. Someone has the incentives to sell you a fund. There's so many in, advisors and investors that have incentives to buy funds that are not necessarily in their best interest. I mean, you're seeing tons and tons of class action lawsuits against 401ks now. And I completely sympathize with that. If you're some crappy 401k, I mean, and even some of the big dudes like Fidelity are probably not innocent here. And you got a bunch of funds that charge these high fees. And so we also had a tweet. We said, you know, in today's world, can you call yourself a fiduciary and only use your own funds? And I don't know that that's a reasonable check the box. You can say like, how do you, how can you say you're a fiduciary and say, you've come to the conclusion that only your own funds are the, the best, the best the, choice. Yeah, right. And, but, but this, you know, look, there's, there's much worse offenders than Vanguard putting people in a bunch of Vanguard funds, you know, like, so to me, that's probably more appropriate than some other platform that putting you in a bunch of funds that charge 2%. But, but almost everything in our world of asset management and finance is dominated by incentives. And so you have to check those. So for example, we can, with this, this is a deep hole, but if you have a brokerage account and you're listening to this, ask yourself, where does the cash go? So if you have a dollar in cash in your brokerage account, if you have a million in cash in your brokerage account, where does that go? Chances are you don't know the answer to this. Second chance is you may say, no, no, it goes into like a money market fund. Well, half the time it's a money market fund that charges like 70 basis points and yields like 20. And then they go and take that cash balance and they invest it at 2% per year. Zweig's written a lot about this. Yeah. And so, uh, so many of these hot fintech startups, you know, and so many brokerages make half their money or more by your cash balance sitting idle. And it does, like you say, well, I got a $100,000 account and I have like $200 in cash. It's just like, but that $200 in cash adds up. And so that's one reason we, we love that Betterment feature called Smart Saver, where they'll help manage your cash balance with short-term bond ETFs, where you can earn two plus percent now in short-term bond ETFs. And so again, it goes back to incentives. And so you look at a lot of the stuff coming out on many of the brokerages where we say, oh, well, how does that free brokerage make so much money? How are they a $5 billion valuation? It's like, oh, they sell all the order flow. You know, and so if you put in a market order, you know, where that ends up is probably not in your best interest. And and Schwab bungled this when they launched Intelligent Explain this more for just make sure all the listeners understand. So Schwab launched their robo for free at zero. And however, they call they require the individual investor to have a large chunk in cash. In some cases, it's like a third and they pay zero on that or or low. I don't know that it's zero, but it's low. And yet they turn around and invest it at 2% plus. So really, if you got a third of the account that should be earning two and it's earning zero, then in reality, you're paying 70 basis points. So they, they earn their money. And on top of that, they use swap funds. So 
you just got to be careful with all the incentives and different ways. And and the problem is, like I I sympathize with a lot of end customers because they don't know. You ask the average person what the fees are and their retirement, like four one k. I think it's like half say it's zero. We went on this rafting trip and this young lady was in our boat and was chatting with us and and she's like, oh, what do you do? And I just kind of like paused and I was like, oh man, should I, should I say I'm a writer? Just say, Meb, say you're a writer. My buddy goes, he's a financial advisor, which we all know is not true, but close enough. And she's like, oh, I went to this dinner the other night and wow, what were we talking about? Um, it was a free dinner. Oh yeah, it was, uh, what do you think about annuities? And I just kind of like took a deep breath and I said, oh, well, you know, like there could be okay, but you just gotta be careful because a lot of times they're really expensive. And she goes, oh no, no, they're free. There's no, there's no fee. I said, okay. So the, the challenge is on a lot of these things with your brokerage account, with your cash management, with your order flow, with all these things is, is short lending. You want a fiduciary, you want someone who has your best interest. So you see shops like Betterment. I get more and more impressed by Betterment over the years and less impressed by a lot of other shops that, that do things that are questionable. I mean, I would also love a feature of a robo and say, you know what? Check the box. I want to allow short lending that, by the way, I may have already checked the box and you're just keeping it, but I want to check the box and I want to share in the short lending revenue that I would get off my stocks or holdings. I want to invest my cash balance in a reasonable yielding alternative versus what you're probably earning on it. So there's a lot of these, there's a whole full degree of bad behavior and worse behavior you know, at the top is charging 2.2% for an S&P 500 mutual fund. Like that's way worse than some of these. But but in some cases, the hidden costs add up. What would you do? Let's say somebody had relative easeability or ease of the ability <laughs> to take a chunk of cash out of a brokerage account and just wire it over to wherever. So what would you do to maximize a big chunk of cash right now? Well, so of course you could, you could invest in an ETF and you, that solves these problems. I mean, Vanguard is always kind of a default for us. You open up a Vanguard account, Wait, sorry, almost me, all of their ETFs are commission-free. Let me back up. They want to keep it kind of liquid, keep the cash somewhat available. Don't want to, I mean, I mean you could buy a CD, like, like it's literally the oldest school investment on the planet, but their CDs, like one year CDs are two plus percent now. I think they might even be like two and a half. You go to the old Bank of America, you got to go into a millennials. This is actually like you go into a branch. It's called a branch. Someone will probably try to sell you a mortgage. But in general, you can buy a CD. It's like two and a half and that's protected. You know, what you don't want to be doing is just sitting on zero. You could buy a short term bond fund. Um, you could invest in Smart Saver. You could put it in a diversified ETF. There's a lot of things you could do with it. But just being aware of all the various ways that Wall Street bleeds you, I think is is really important. And if you're not aware and you, you're like, oh my God, I just listened to this entire thing. I have no idea what a money market fund even is, that it's important to have fiduciary in your corner and have someone that's actually looking out for you. That's like if you look around the poker table and you can't find the fish, you're the one. All right, let's move on to uh, Q&A here. You got any more general thoughts you want to hit on before we launch into some of these questions? No. All right. Number one, uh, Meb, I know you often say that over the long term, asset allocation doesn't really matter much. A 60-40 portfolio and a portfolio with almost any mix of stocks, bonds, and real assets will end up producing around the same kager over time. However, isn't it important to note that because of the nature of compounding, a small difference in kager over time can amount to a large dollar amount difference in your savings, potentially tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars? 
Well, the simple great takeaway is absolutely a little bit of cager makes a big difference over time. Just go and tell me where you're going to, where that cager is, right? My, my point with the asset allocation strategy is that if you're doing buy and hold asset allocation, it doesn't really matter what your asset allocation is, dot, 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 assuming you have all the main inputs and that's global stocks, global bonds, global real assets. And so then if you have 30% in global stocks or 50, I don't think it's going to matter. It matters if you have 95% and then nothing and everything else, right? And so it goes back to our old analogy in the book of, of baking, if, as long as you have flour, butter, or if you're paleo, whatever, almond flour, chocolate chips, as long as you have the main ingredients, they'll probably end up okay. It doesn't matter if you have a, a pinch of chocolate chips or a whole handful, it's probably still going to be all right. The question presupposes that you know what asset classes will outperform. So then you say, look, the global market portfolio to me, market cap weight is the starting point. That is the asset allocation is a commodity. You should be paying nothing for that. It's already free. If you're paying more for that, you're just giving money to someone. But that's the starting point. You say, I want to start to outperform that. There's lots of stuff you can do. We talk about a lot. The most important on the equity side is you break the market capitalated link. So you could value, tilt towards value stocks. You could tilt towards momentum stocks. Right now, that means value would put you in a lot more foreign than the US. You can do similar things with the fixed income universe and, and on and on. You know, there's a, there's are ways you can increase cater. But, but the bigger question is, how much confidence do you have in what you're doing will actually improve the return? And if you are, if you have some amazing badass trading arbitrage system, and there's plenty of people that have had those throughout history, yeah, absolutely you want to leverage that. But for broad asset allocation, I say it doesn't matter. But then once you could, yes, are there things you can do to tilt, calibrate, that help that, uh, I think for sure. And you want to do those things. I don't hear you denying that over 30, 40 years, you know, a few basis points wouldn't, when compounded, add up to something material. But your point, obviously, is you don't know what's going to produce the increase in those various. If basis you have confidence in where those are, I would say one of the biggest that everyone neglects is, is taxes and fees. So look for the basis points on fees. Look for the basis point on taxes. I mean, there's so many people that invest in hedge funds and taxable accounts and totally neglect to realize that it takes like 20% returns to get down to relatively reasonable equity returns of like 8% after taxes. Because most hedge funds are run totally without any regard to taxes. And they charge two and 20. But what do people see? They say, oh, it's the sexy side of hedge funds. It's the returns and everything else. And, and once you factor in the taxes and fees, it's not so great. All right, next question. What are your thoughts on using leverage with momentum? From my own testing, momentum plus leverage plus a stop loss seems to be more winning or less losing than, say, plain vanilla momentum. Leverage is, is sort of like the same thing as giving someone money. I, who said this the other day? Maybe it was Josh Brown. Is it makes It makes you really more of who you are. So leverage, you give someone money, they win the lottery or whatever, if they're already a great person, they'll be probably an even more generous, wonderful person. If you're already an asshole, it probably makes you an even more unbearable asshole. Same thing with leverage. Like if you have a good strategy, it sure it will amplify those returns, but and, and a bad strategy will amplify those returns. The problem with leverage is the path. 
And so usually most investments are already pretty volatile for people. Just look at the general news flow, people talking about stocks, which by the way, already have embedded leverage because of debt. A lot of people don't know that. But stocks are already pretty volatile. And then on top of that, you want to add more leverage to that. Yeah, that's that's I, I'm totally agnostic, by the way. You leverage it three times. I don't care. But most people can't already deal with the volatility and drawdowns. And so this runs into the some of the challenges of the risk parity. So you've seen risk parity, which is a strategy that puts a lot more in bonds and a lot less tra in traditional asset classes and then leverages the whole portfolio on a formulaic basis is fine. Now, on a basis of like, you know, how much you leverage that, I'm not going to get into the our, our biggest punching bag, the, the wealth front risk parity fund. But I think in the documents that it could get up to like 3x leverage or something. It might have even been four. And, and it, Buffett tells a great old story where they all, they used to have like a third partner and I forget what his name is, but he wanted to be able to use, I think, leverage to help maximize his gains. And, you know, eventually, essentially they bought him out. He went, he went broke and they said, what was the problem? And Buffett said, uh, you know, he couldn't, he's like, I always knew I would be rich. And he's like the person, his old partner, he's like, he wanted to get rich quickly. You know, he didn't want, he didn't want to get rich slowly. And so the, the problem with leverage is it just magnifies everything. And I, I don't think people can handle normal leverage anyway of, of just buying a stock. Well, I think the assumption here was he would be throwing on a stop loss, but then of course you might get whipsawed out and that gets really it's hard tough, from a man. behavioral I, perspective. Yeah. I, I don't, the, my advice for the vast majority of people is you don't need it. All right. So while we're on the, topic here sort of trading another question let's say you are looking for a trading advantage and you woke up tomorrow and found yourself to be a programming expert what would you do or explore in your programming to find alpha would you do anything different than you're doing now so the whole point of active management and this can be quantitative it could be high frequency it could be low frequency it could be betting on sports it could be betting on horses it doesn't matter you only have two potential sources of alpha you have a better model. So you look at the data that currently exists and say, I can massage this better than everyone else. Or you have a data set that no one else has. There was a really fun podcast recently with Ted Seides, Capital Allocators, where they have a, a guy that invests in minor league baseball players. And just investing. And so he gives them some money up front because being a minor league baseball player sucks and you have to like deliver pizza in the off season and drive Uber because you don't make much money. But out of the 8,000 minor league baseball players, like 3% eventually make it to the majors and then make millions. And the problem was is that identifying the top prospects is simple, top couple hundred, but then it was finding the rest that were actually pretty good that would make it. And then, so they would do, this guy did a fund it's actually a Virginia guy. I did a fund where, um, and actually was a professional pitcher, but did a fund where they would give these guys some money up front in exchange for a percentage of future salary. And it's a traditional what's called an income sharing agreement. And I was tweeting about this in regards to some other areas, but people react so weird to that. Anyway, the whole point was this guy was like, look, I mean, he's a professional baseball player, ran the numbers and found out that you actually just doing offering players this deal you wouldn't make good returns as a fund because so few made it but then he spent a year 
of 16-hour days building a model that tried to look at things a little bit differently and came up with a model that was more predictive of future success for these players than no model. And that one, it turned out, did great. And he's now hired, go listen to the episode, but he's now hired a bunch of other sports analytic geeks and they just raised like another $200 million fund or something. Okay, so he found a better mousetrap pretty much. He, he had different data that people didn't have and also massaged the current data better. So there's whole worlds of inefficiency everywhere. I mean, I, I remember we had a friend that used to do a arbitrage sports betting model across sports books. And it worked. The problem I always had was you have a sports book and you put a bunch of money in it and it disappears into the Barbados ether, the Bayesian ether. So that's a different risk that people, it's kind of like the crypto world. So yes, could you come up? So the program, the question is not that you're good at programming. Can you come up with a data set that's better or different? And one of the challenges as well is you know, we watch our friends at Quantopian and a lot of these people building pure quant based models. And unless you have a little bit of historical knowledge and common sense about not data mining, about how markets work, about some general concepts, then you're just potentially overfitting the data and coming up with some model that has no chance of working. And a lot of the purely technical stat arb ones as well, they work for a while and then they just stop whatever reason, different regime. But the fundamental ones where you can come up with a market inefficiency, that that's printed billionaires all around the world in different businesses. Like it's not just investing, it's businesses too. If you can come up with a way to massage weather inputs better or the, net, the old Netflix prize, if you could massage the Netflix algorithm better, they pay, what was it, a million bucks to, to improve their algorithm? So I basically feel like this guy was pretty much asking you to sort of tell him the, the magic bullet of what you would look for to, yeah. to outperform. And I don't hear you saying that. Here you um, telling him the process, but not the... Yeah, but the that's kind of the whole point is, 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 is process is much more important than like what is the actual formula. We have tons of formulas that already work, but finding one that's kind of the holy grail or, or unique, get a little creative. There's, there's a website, and I can't remember the name of it is off the top of my head, that you can hold data competitions. I used to always want to try to talk my Morningstar friends into doing one called the Morningstar Prize for Mutual Fund Analysis that was the same thing. Analyze mutual fund data to come up with a better model than Morningstar may have already. That's what's predictive in mutual funds. And there's a lot that's like that have slight benefits. Is Does the manager invest in their own fund? Are fees high? What's the active share? And then coming up with a whole slew of factors and then saying, oh, Here's how, here's a better way of selecting managers. So this would be more predictive than reflective. Correct. Okay. And a lot of them are simple. I mean, fees is a big one. Does the manager drive a fancy sports car? There was one that was like college wasn't predictive, but SAT score was. Do you think that all this a would- Male or female, females in general were better. Well, but how much do you think any of this would truly offset just the basic valuation where you're starting? Well, I, I well, a lot of them are comparing the fund manager to their benchmark class. So if it's a large value guy in the US, it's large value competitors. I think some of the biggest ones are kind of obvious. It's of course fees, but it's also active share. It's like if they're a closet indexer, they're probably just out by default. Um, but but it's that that world's so hard, like trying to trying to follow fundamental managers that it's such a nightmare for me. I can't imagine why anyone would want to do it ever. 
Well, let's move you on from this conversation yeah. topic. All right, next question. Meb, I know you're generally pretty ambivalent about which moving averages to use, but do you have any recommendations for someone looking to diversify their trend-following sleeve by applying a few different rules? For example, I've been doing a third 50-day, a third 200-day, and a third crossover. I was hoping that question was just going to end on, Meb, you're pretty ambivalent. And that was it. You know, like we've talked about this a lot before where we say parameter stability is important. So I don't really care if you were applying 50-day, 200-day, 300-day breakouts, whatever it may be. I think it's important to come up with one where it's kind of like in the middle of what broadly works and then not futzing around with it every time it doesn't work as well as something else does. However, does spreading out and using multiple parameters is that a reasonable choice? Absolutely, because it helps break up into more granularity your trading size. It helps give you more of an average blend of the possible outcomes. And the example we used to always give was if you were using the 200-day moving average or shorter going into the 1987 crash, congratulations, you just made a career because you would have been out of the market like Paul Tudor Jones. If you use the 200-day moving average or longer, you would have been invested in stocks going into that crash congratulations, you are finding a new career. But it, had you used, say, four different parameters of various links, you would have only been, say, 25% invested or 50% invested. So you'll get the average blend of all the future outcomes. And, and this goes back to another just general concept, which is back to the original question of tying it all together with why not just put it all in the SP 500. One of the reasons a lot of people think that diversification of equities globally gives you better risk-adjusted returns, and it doesn't for the most part. What it does is it removes the outliers. So the US over the next 10 years could be the best performing stock market in the world, could be worst, could go down 80, 90%. But the average is likely to be somewhere in the middle. It's not likely it's going to be in the middle. It's the definition of average. But so on the flip side, you say, well, the US has always done better. But if you look back in the 20th century, you had entire stock markets that disappeared, China, Russia. You had other markets that essentially went down 90%, never recovered. You had some markets that had zero return over the course of the whole 20th century and others that did even better than the US, like South Africa. So I think diversification of signals is, is fine. But again, to me, it's you don't want to take uncompensated risk anywhere. That's why you mentioned diversifying signals. And if you were using multiple signals, then potentially, in, in back to the crash, potentially you would have been only 75% invested or maybe 50% invested. And I thought you were going to go with this in the direction of the whole concept of most people have a binary orientation toward investing versus, you know, all in, all out, and versus just sort of grading in, grading out different amounts and, you know, helping you sleep better. Yeah. People want to think in binary terms, they want to gamble, they want to complicate the process. I think we should do a year-end podcast where it says, look, let's reflect how many of you have implemented our zero budgeting idea towards your portfolio, how many of you have written down a policy statement, how many of you cleaned house your portfolio, invested in what you wanted to be, think you should be invested in rather than what you have been invested in. I, be I bet the compliance is like 5% less, probably. Yeah, not more. Yeah. All right, we're getting down to the end. A few more here. Uh, you speak frequently about the benefit of taking a lump sum and investing it now versus later. With current equity valuations, at least here in the U.S., so frothy, is that still true? And if so, why? Can you go deeper into the specifics of why the math works? 
So, uh, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> uh, related on a recent episode, Meb jokingly said he would not put any new money to work in U.S. equities. This seems to be a conflict with the aforementioned lump sum advice. What gives? I've explained many times what I do with my money in blog posts and on the podcast. But theoretically, if you're doing, somebody comes to us and say, I got a million bucks. I inherited it or I liquidate my portfolio, whatever. I want to start fresh. So I invest it all tomorrow or should I wait and do it part and partial? Statistically speaking, because markets go up over time, formulaically, you want to put all of it into now. However, lots of people struggle with hindsight bias to where if they invested all their money, it's not what we would do, but let's say they put it all into US stocks today and the market went down 50% in the next three months, they would feel pretty dumb and it would haunt them probably for the rest of their life. So what if I just waited three months? So you could ease that burden by spreading it out over time if you wanted to. Second is if you are of the belief that US stocks are expensive, which is what we believe, you could dollar cost average into that asset class. And so if stocks go down and have a bear market, you're essentially dollar cost averaging in lower valuations. Okay, If you thought that stocks were super cheap, it makes more sense to put it all in now. But again, you run the same risk of stocks being cheap and going down by half as they're apt to do. So I'm agnostic. You know, I, I always say the default is to go all in. But if you're going to have any psychological issues, I mean, we're also not just investing in one asset class. It's globally diversified assets. And but our strategies are trend following too. But there's got to be some level, just to push back, there's got to be some level of valuation at which you say, no, 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 this is crazy. It doesn't make any sense to put money in now because the amount of time for me to make my money back, if there's a crash, is going to be forever. For instance, Japan. Let's say Japan and your cape is at 50 and rising. Are you still going to say, no, no, mathematically, it's going to work out if I just put money in now and let it ride? Well, that's what we said, because if it's expensive, it makes more sense to dollar cost average. Okay. But at what point Granted, would you say- it can be expensive and getting more expensive. But yes, what, what you could design it in a way says, you know what? Let's say the stock market's at 32 in the US. I'm going to only put new money to work as it goes down dollar cost average, but I'm going to dollar cost average every five or two points, the CAPE ratio goes down or the stock market every 10% it goes down. Then I'll add more. Okay, but but by that token, then you're not investing in this roaring uprising. No, you are. Market. You put some in. You're, you're waiting until it drops, put, though. I would say you would put some in. Okay, but again, I I don't really care that much. <laughs> I mean, I, I could write a paper on this. Probably come up with an idea. So, so someone's written one. It might have even been Kitsis. Someone has written one combining Cape and dollar cost averaging. We'll find it, readers. We'll put a show link in the uh, show notes. All right, two more. Uh, you frequently advocate for ETFs versus mutual funds. But does that advice apply to index mutual funds or only active mutual funds? The default on everything at this point is ETFs. And you have to make an argument going forward why a mutual fund would be better. In general, they're twice the expense ratio of ETFs. And in general, they're much less tax efficient. So could you make an argument for a mutual fund? Sure. But then you see all sorts of terrible behavior, like the recent fund that changed managers and just distributed a third of their capital gains. I mean, you could have an index mutual fund. Theoretically, you could own an index mutual fund, have a loss on the portfolio and still have a capital gains distribution. It's unlikely. So index funds, yes, 
theoretically probably better than active generalization speaking but the default in my mind is always etfs first and then go from there last question i've struggled with how to know when to take a loss i'm wondering about how to take better losses and how to determine when it's appropriate to take one do you as a quant have set rules in place for instance do you use any sort of technical analysis help me out well theoretically let's say you had a buy and hold global portfolio asset allocations you would never take a loss you just buy and hold and you rebalance and that's that. Let's say that you had a portfolio that you're actually trading on your own, which sounds like this person's doing. There is a world out there that let's say you just own 30 US stocks. If you had a trend following process and procedure, yeah, absolutely. You sell stocks as they hit your rules. So am I okay with stop losses? Yeah but it has to be part of your system. Most of these questions people ask, they don't have a system already. So if your system is, I invest in assets or stocks, and once they go down by 15% or two trailing ATRs or you know whatever measure they have, is that a reasonable strategy? I'm fine with that, but you also have to have a strategy to rebalance and re-enter or pick new investments to enter into so selling is only one half of the equation. How do you reenter? How do you manage the portfolio sizing, everything else? You know, so if, if you run a quantitative strategy that's factor-based, often they simply just rebalance into the highest, say, 10% based on these factors. So you don't really have a stop loss. You just clean house and reallocate to whatever's in that bucket. So again, it all goes back to what are your exact rules and process and if you don't have one and you just ask me if I think that our stop loss is reasonable, they are, but they're useless unless you have them as a one of the trading rules in an entire allocation. Well, it ties back to what you were saying a moment ago about how many listeners have actually written down their plan, know what they're invested in, why, under what conditions they would get out, when are they going to continue with strategy, for what reasons. So it really is just sort of thinking through all these things ahead of time so that emotions don't trip you up in the moment. Most investors' plan is to win the, is it Powerball or Mega Millions? The one that's 1.6 billion? You mean the one I'm going to win? Yeah. <laughs> Which one is it? I think it's uh, I Mega know. Millions. Powerball? I don't know. All right. Uh, what else do you got? Anything else you want to touch on before we uh, wind down? No. Come say hi in Vegas. I'll take you to the buffet and buy you a crab leg. We'll be, I think it's, I think the conference is in Paris. Is it Paris, Paris, or just Paris? Paris, Paris. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, one, listeners, it's been great. Send us some questions. We're running out of questions. Feedback at themebfavorshow.com. As always, leave us a review. We love reading them. And we'll post show notes, links, a whole bunch of stuff on dollar cost averaging to the show notes at mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. Listen to us on the various apps, Overcast, Stitcher, my favorite, Breaker, for now. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.